1: 1 Peter chapter 5, 12 through 14. On January 8th of this year, we began studying the letter of 1 Peter. And I started the message with, these, with this statement. This morning, we begin a journey through the first letter of Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, five chapters that will both challenge and encourage us to live in a world that's hostile to our faith. And I believe it is that we have accomplished both objectives. We have learned that First 1 Peter was written most likely in the early 60 ADs from Rome, and it deals with local persecution of the original intended audience of Christians in the Roman provinces in Asia Minor. That's now modern-day Turkey. This letter seems very Jewish mainly because it was written by Peter, a Jew, but also because it is full of Old Testament imagery. However, it was written to the Gentile Christians and has great applications for us today. The theme of Peter's first letter is that Christians are called to a life of suffering. You and I are called to a life of suffering. Suffering and salvation, sanctification, submission and service. The message of 1 Peter is simply this: how to handle a suffering as a Christian. The answer, Peter writes, is hope. God gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. One teacher writes that 1 Peter instructs us that God's people are a misunderstood minority, living under the the rule of a different king, and that persecution offers the believers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. In today's passage, as we are now in our 25th uh, message of this passage, of this series, we read Peter's concluding words to those elect exiles in Asia Minor. He has challenged and encouraged them to rest in the goodness of God and to resist Satan who seeks to devour God's children through doubting God's truth and God's goodness and God's love. While God uses suffering to test the genuineness of our faith and to remold us into the image of Jesus, Satan's goal is to use that same suffering to keep our focus on ourselves rather than God. He uses it to weaken our faith and to paralyze our mission as ambassadors of Christ. Peter ends with thanking a couple of of his fellow servants in Christ, reminding them of his purpose in writing and encouraging them that they are not alone and with instructions to love one another. So with that let's go to our last message, 1 Peter chapter 5, 12 through 14. Here Peter writes, by Silvanus, a faithful brother and uh, brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all who are in Christ. Father, we come before you this morning to thank you for these 25 messages. I know I've shared before, this is the first time that I've ever been in depth in reading First Peter, and it's been one that's been encouraging, challenging, and informative. And Father, it has molded and helped and shaped my heart to understand how we're to respond to the ridicule and the rejection from a world that's hostile to our faith. Father, encourage us as we close this message, as this is a very timely passage for us in this world. Father, open up our minds and hearts. Let us humble ourselves. Let us rest in your truth. And Father, I pray that we would respond to the Holy Spirit's work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First, I want to give you some quick observations about the passage. Verse, 13, or verse 12 serves as a closing and a benediction of his personal letter to the churches in the five provinces of Asia Minor. He begins by re- recognizing the contributions of Silvanius, a faithful brother. Now, Silvanius was also named Silas. You'll see both names used in scripture, and he was a partner with the apostle Paul in his missionary travels. He was a prophet and a Roman citizen who was imprisoned with Paul in Philippi. He served Peter by delivering his letter to the elect exiles of the dispersions in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter affirms that he personally wrote the letter and he gives testimony to Silvanus' credibility as the bearer of the letter. he as he would most likely serve also as an interpreter of the letter of Paul or Peter and answer any questions that might arise from the churches. In verse 13, Peter moves to share with the Christians in Asia Minor greetings from the church at Rome and Mark. Peter is letting them know that they are not alone, that there is other churches that uh, suffer from the same thing. There are churches filled with believers who understand what they are going through. Now, Peter identifies the church of Rome as she who is at Babylon. Now, there are several clues there that Paul is referring to the church of Rome. First, by identifying the she as likewise chosen, we come to understand that he's talking about believers, a collection of believers. Paul wrote this letter from Rome. The Old Testament city of Babylon was in ruins at the time of his writing, and there's no evidence that Peter ever ministered there. Peter again is using Old Testament imagery of Israel to encourage the churches. Babylon was a city where, as we read earlier in our scripture reading, that Israel was exiled for 70 years. And we're going to see how this might encourage them a little bit later in this message. Peter also mentions greetings from Mark, also known as John Mark. The early church of Jerusalem met in his, in his mother's home and he was well known among the apostles. He went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but for reasons that he left early and he did not finish the trip. When it was time to go back out, Paul refused to allow Mark to accompany them, causing a division between Paul and Barnabas who wanted Mark to go with them. Paul took Silvanus, Silas, and Barnabas took Mark, and they separated. However, after some time, Mark and Paul were reuni- reunited and mended their relationship. While in prison, Paul writes to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for the ministry. Mark would eventually write the gospel of Mark that we went over for over a little bit over a year, that most scholars would say is based on Peter's eyewitnesses accounts and messages. Mark is not Peter's physical son, but symbolic of his love for him. And that brings us now to verse 14. In verse 14, Peter leaves them one more instructions with a blessing of peace. He writes, greet one another with a kiss of love. This is similar to Paul who would write, greet one another with a holy kiss. It was common, a common way of greeting each other in that community. Similar to our greeting today uh, today of shaking hands and embracing This type of greeting is to be pure and unstained by sexual lust. Recognizing that suffering puts a heavy burden on individuals and liable to put a strain on the covenant community. He wants them to show their love for one another and acceptance of one another. And there's something about embracing and caring for one another. It's unfortunately that too many times in churches today that We mostly come, you know, right before the service starts and we leave right quickly afterwards that we don't spend time getting to know and to love and to care for each other. Do not misinterpret the the five minutes or so that we have of shaking hands of real fellowship and real greeting. It's important, but really it's coming down and talking and really loving and caring for each other. That's what the church is to be, true caring for one another. He also imparts a very important uh, word to those that are suffering from hostility in the phrase, peace to all of you, peace. This is somewhat uh, something we desperately need in times like this. We are surrounded by outrage, anger, and hatred. It seems like all we see in the news, all we see in the papers is outrage, anger, and hatred. And we can't find peace anywhere. Peter writes to those who are in Christ, referring to believers. Those of you in Christ must live in peace. The church must be a place of peace. You and I, as we said last week, must not succumb to the spirit of this age responding to the hostility with vengeance and anger and hatred. The church, the bride of Christ, is to be filled with peace. The church should be a place of peace where all are accepted and welcomed who are who are who are loved and cared for. The Christian home should be a place of peace where the husband and the wife love each other love their children. And the Christian heart should be a pa- place of peace knowing that we've been reconciled with an almighty God our father. Whatever turmoil suffering persecution, ridicule, rejection, or repercussion that you are facing today due to your faithfulness of God. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, may it guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you need peace, this is the place to get it. Understanding that Christ died for our peace. Now this peace is not something that you and I can conjure up through our own strength and intellect and reason or self-discipline. This piece comes from the true grace of God that Peter says, I've written briefly about the true grace of God in his letter. And so that's where we want to spend some time this morning. The peace that this world needs, the racial, racial reconciliation, the, 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 the political reconciliation, all these different philosophies and worldviews, we're trying to try to find some peace, but it never will be found outside the grace of God. Amen? And we need to understand that. The only answer that the world truly needs is the gospel. I know, yes, they need food, they need water, they need a place to stay, they may need jobs, they may need this and that. But what people truly need is the gospel. Peter has identified the true grace of God by exhorting and declaring in this letter several different things. And I'd like to share with him briefly with you. We've gone over them in detail, but just again as an overbroad, he's saying, I've exhorted and declared you that the song of praise of our glorious election, salvation, and eternal inheritance of chapter 1. This is the true grace that we have been chosen by God and that we have been guarded by God and being kept by God and we have an eternal home by God that cannot be taken away. There is a peace in that. There is a peace knowing that we are with God. Also, our new identity is the family of God that serves and submits in covenant community. You and I need to realize that coming to church is not just a duty. It's not just something that we do, but it's a grace of God. Coming here is part of being of the grace of God and experience his grace as we submit to God's authority, submit to one another, and then serve one another. Too many people come to church looking to be fed. Many people, I'm just not going go to church today. The pastor's not feed me. I didn't get anything out of the service. That's not why you come to church. It may be one of them, but really you come, have you thought today, your thing is I'm coming to use my spiritual gift to serve someone today. I'm gonna submit, declare my allegiance to God. I wanna be fed by his word, but I'm going to serve. This is family dinner together. Yes, we eat from the word of God, but yet we're also serving tables by loving and encouraging one another. What is your spiritual gift? Are you using that grace gift to serve someone else? Unfortunately, and I'm not speaking here of OVBC, though we're not immune to it. Too many churches, too many times, church has become a consumer. I go to church to consume, to get what I need. And when the church doesn't have what I need, then I go somewhere else. We've experienced that ourselves. But the grace of God is not one to consume, but to submit and to serve in the family, in the church, and in our lives. Also, the grace of God that he has exhorted and declared in these passages is our suffering serves as a witness to Jesus and makes us a partner with him. It is truly one of the graces of God that he allows us to partner with him and suffer as a witness. As Christ, who is on the cross, draws all men to him, so does our, surfer, our suffering then point to the true one, the one who can give the peace. The other true grace that he has identified is that our suffering is only temporary and that our hope is in the future vindication and exaltation of Christ and believers. And that you and I must rest in God's providence and resist Satan's attack to devour us. Even that is the true grace of God for those that are his children. The grace of God has been manifested in Jesus Christ, who suffered on the cross and was then exalted to glory. This should be the model for Christians to follow in their suffering. Until that day when Christ returns and the believers are exalted and vindicated, Peter tells us that we are to stand firm in it, stand firm in the grace of God. We are to stand firm not in the strength of our own pride or courage or righteousness, but the knowledge that by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Scripture points to three things that you and I should stand firm in this morning, in the midst of trials, in the midst of our troubles, our temptations, our problems, and our suffering. The first one is you and I need to stand firm in the knowledge of the sovereignty of of God over suffering. The sovereignty of God over suffering. All suffering is ordained by God and serves his purposes. We are never left alone or abandoned by our father, but yet he ador- ordains suffering to happen in our lives. In Genesis, Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says this for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In the book of Job, we are told that Job's suffering was due to a cosmic bargain between God and Satan. God gives Satan temporary power to inflict Job's income, Job's family, and eventually his personal body. Pastor John Piper notes that evil and suffering in this world are greater than any of us can comprehend, but evil and suffering are not ultimate. God is. Satan, the great lover of evil and suffering, is not sovereign, but God is. Sometimes for you and I, and I understand this is happens to me, is that our suffering becomes so big in our minds and our eyes that it creates the anxieties and worries that just draw us down and God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. What happens there is we forget the sovereignty of God. God. Daniel chapter four tells us that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The prophet Isaiah writes that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times uh, not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. And King Solomon reminds us who has spoken and it come to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? I know many of you want to know, why are bad things happening? Why is death prevalent? Why are these struggles so, oh, so difficult? Why is life sometimes such a mess? It's because the sovereignty of God has ordained suffering in our lives. And we need to understand that until we come to accept that there will be no peace in our minds and our hearts. In this sin-filled world that brings death, that brings decay, that brings destruction, God is even sovereign over all of that. Which brings us to the next once we have acknowledged God's sovereign, we must acknowledge that God, that God is providence, the providence of God in providing comfort in that suffering. The second thing that we need to understand is the providence of God in providing comfort in our suffering. This is not a cruel God. We do not have a God that ordains things and then walks away and says, deal with it. We have a God who's providence in that suffering. When he ordained sin, he made made a way for us to find comfort in the midst of that. In Isaiah 61, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, The Spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me, because Jehovah have anointed me to announce good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Jehovah and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those that mourn. Jesus, in reading this portion of scripture in a synagogue, amazed his listeners by proclaiming, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Jesus ushered in this time of comfort we need to recognize that Jesus does not leave us alone in our suffering. God has provided comfort for us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassions and the God of all encouragement, who encourage us in all of our tribulations. As we said last week, Jesus is our beast of burden. When Jesus said, cast all your cares on me, he's saying, I know the difficulties that you're going through. I know the temptations. I know the troubles. But I walk with you. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I will be that beast of burden. You and I must recognize that the providence of God and providing comfort to those in suffering are not left alone. Many of us do not find peace and comfort because we're yet not standing firm in the grace of God. We're trying to solve the problems on our own. We're trying to comfort and find comfort in things that are contrary to the things of God. Hence why so many fall into various types of addictions or pleasure experiments or seeking all sorts of ways of finding comfort. They're finding it outside the providences of God. The third grace that you and I are staying firm in, in First Peter, is not only the sovereignty of God over suffering, not only the providence of God in providing comfort, but number three, the purposes of God in ordaining suffering. For Satan will try to attack God's goodness and saying, if God is good, then there must not be any evil. Or if there is evil, then God is not good. Let's not fall to that old philosophical argument. But understand that even though he is sovereign over suffering, he ordains it. And even though he provides it, there's a purpose in it. He's not just trying to show you who's the boss. He's not just trying to make your life more difficult. But what we come to understand is the biblical perspective of that suffering serves a purpose. I like what Greg Warren says, that God does not waste a hurt. That everything that God brings in your life, all those things that have defeated you, all those things that have brought you down, all those sins that you have struggled with and failed with, God will use that for your good for those that are his children. That's his promises. I want to give you just three things that, that the purpose of God in ordaining. This is not exclusive, but three things we see. The first thing, God's purpose in, in, in ordaining suffering is so that you and I might encourage each other. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Second Corinthians chapter 1. We see this clearly as Paul writes to a church that is enduring some suffering. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, we'd already gone on, Blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus, the Father of all compassions, the God of all encouragement, who encourages us in all our tribulation. But look at verse 4. Paul continued to write about suffering when he says that we may be able to encourage those who are any tribulation whatever through encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged of God Because even as the sufferings of Christ abound towards us, so through Christ does our encouragement also abound. You and I, God has ordained suffering. The purpose is so that we may serve others by encouraging them. And here's the thing. I know what's so difficult for us is many times is when we have suffered is to share that with others. Our pride, other things get in our way, we don't want people, you know, we don't want people to know our business, you know, we're, we're the type of church, we don't want people to know our business, but let me tell you, your failures, your suffering, your temptations, your hardships are meant to use to comfort others. As you learn from them, as you grow through them, God says now take that and comfort others. Who else can comfort someone who has lost a child than someone else who has done so? For someone who has experienced a difficult death in the family, and someone who has done that as we come along, and we walk beside them, letting them know that God has a purpose in this. The second purpose is to make us more like Christ. First Peter has told us this several times. It's to test the genuineness of our faith. It's to make us more like Christ. James says the same thing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various temptations, knowing that Proving of your faith works endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. It's the way that God uh, roughens, or what's the word I'm looking for? He he takes off the rough edges, smooths out the rough edges in our lives. It's how he directs our hearts more towards Christ. To make us more like him. Then thirdly, it's to glorify Christ. First Peter chapter 1, if you're there in First Peter, he says, wherein you exalt for a little while while present, if needed, if you've been put to grief by various trials at the proving of your faith, more precious than of gold which perishes, though it is proved by fire, it's found to be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. He says it again in First Peter chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening, but rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And that glory is revealed when Christ is vindicated for all those who suffered for his name. When Christ returns as the righteous judge, God gets the glory when we respond to suffering so differently from the world that encourages and gives hopes to those who see us and desire the same thing. So as we look at scripture, you and I are to stand firm in the grace of God. And I'd ask you this morning, are you standing firm in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, and in the purposes of God? If you're struggling with that this morning, I would ask you, would you just pray, Father, help me to understand Jesus, show me perfectly what is going on here. Holy Spirit, teach me, convict me of what I should know. If we want to really have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, we must stand firm in that truth. Stand firm in that truth, not only here at church, but in your home, recognizing that God has his purposes, his providence, and sovereignty. So how do you and I live in a world that is hostile to our faith, to a world that will ridicule our belief and our rejection of our worldview. For we live in that world today. You may be seeing some of that. That's not really a good phrase, but I'll say it again. You may be seeing that somewhat in your own life. You may find yourself being ridiculed for your faith or for your desire to live a godly life. You may even be rejected by some in your family or in your neighborhood or for others because of your faith and your decision to do and follow Christ. Some of you may be following uh, some repercussions, maybe even just being here today saying, well, I won't work on Sunday. I'll give up the hours. I'll give up the money. But let me share with you, it's worth it. How though should we respond to the repercussions that we will face for living out our faith? Scripture commands us to embrace this persecution with joy and gladness, understanding that this suffering is for our good and for God's glory. And the reason I say this and I want to challenge you is because, again, as we looked at last week, is so many people, as I go through Twitter and Facebook, I see some of the most angry, some of the most vindictive people are those who profess Christ. You see the comments in the newspaper and those that are talking about all these things, many times it's those who profess Christ are the most vindictive, the most angry. They're ready to protest. And that's not how God has called us to be. Yes, we have these rights, but yet these rights are, are not above God's call for us as Christians. He hasn't called us to be dormants. We are to be good citizens, yes. If you have the right to do these things, do it, but do it in such a way that gives glory to God. Check your motives. So many times, and I know this is going to be controversial and this will cause me some pain, but sometimes we forget that we're Christians first and Americans second. And I think sometimes there's this American Christianism um, hybrid out there that many times that is unhealthy, is destroy the churches. It's that type of hybrid that's led to this uh, many times this white nationalized, this white supremacy who will use Christ and the word of God to say, yes, we must do this. I've I told you the story before. I had a, a, um, a principal in my school when I was a young man. Uh, he went after I graduated. That was enough for him. So he left the principal and went to become a pastor at a church in Alabama. He was not even there a year before he was drummed out because the deacons threw him out when he said he wanted black people to go ahead and attend the church. He didn't realize that some of his deacons were actually members of the KKK. This is 1990. 1990. They're using the church. They're using the word of God. They're using the, the name of Christ to, to justify this hateful, vindictive, wrong, sinful behavior. you and I must be aware that our very response to the suffering and the persecution will serve as a testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of God. And though some may respond to hostility to our faith, some will be brought under the conviction and turn towards Christ. In this, we stand firm, amen? In the grace of God, we must learn from the words of Jeremiah to Israel, and how to survive as exiles in a world that is not our home. Let's go back to why Peter referred to Rome as Babylon. Babylon was a city where Israel was exiled for uh, up to 70 years. We read this earlier in our scripture reading. Peter uses uses Babylon to remind them of the words of Jeremiah, who wrote to them, this is how you're to respond in a world in which is going to be hostile to your faith. You have been subjected, you have been deported to to this land. This land is a pagan land. This this land is going to demand that you worship its gods. And we can go back to Daniel and see how the three Hebrew children and Daniel themselves suffered and were persecuted for their faith. But yet God in his providence and his sovereignty comforted them. But there were many who died for their faith. This is what God says to them when he sends them to this land. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile. He says, rebel, seek vengeance, and seek hatred against Nebuchadnezzar and all those people. Is that what he said? No. He said, instead of seeking that, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And I tell you we live in a day of age where everyone wants us to decrease in population and in things of that nature. But God says, no, live life. Fulfill the creation mandate that I've given from Adam to Noah and to you. Be fruitful and multiply. Live in peace. Continue to live quiet lives. Does he say to try to upthrow and overthrow the government? No. Does he say keep pockets of resistance? No. But he says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord, the sovereign God on high, that's my words, on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find welfare. You and I should be praying for our president, for our congressmen, for our senators, city and state officials. We need to pray for peace, for the welfare of our nation for them to find God. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and, your, and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie, for they are prophesying to you in my name, but I did not send them. I'm telling you what the last thing that they were to do is they were to watch out for false prophets. And we have many today that are preaching to you to stand firm in something other than in the grace of God. You and I are to live life raising our families, getting married, working hard, working honestly, praying for the welfare of those around, you, loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving God, all the while serving God through our humbleness, as we rest in his sovereignty, his providence, and his purposes resisting Satan's desire to devour us and to make us uh, do what he wants us to do from li- for living of ourselves. Jeremiah closes with this wonderful promise of, of, of God to Israel. For God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now this promise, let's not make no mistake, this promise is for Israel. But the God who never changes has the same plan for us, not for the nation of United States of America, not for France, not for Europe, or for China, but for restoration in the new heavens and the new Earth. Though exiled in a world we, though exiled in a world that is not our home, you and I must hold on to truth that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ you and I are to live in the knowledge of the sovereignty and the providence and the purposes of God, knowing that one day Christ will return as that righteous judge and he will reconcile all things and true peace will be completed until that day stand firm in the grace of God in the midst of a world that's hostile to our faith. Let me close with these words. You and I must recognize that we've been called out and chosen by God and dispersed around the world, that we may be salt and light to the world around us. And I say dispersed around the world because too many times we think of ourselves as just American Christians and we forget those that are persecuted throughout the world. We must remember the church at Babylon. We must remember the church at Galatia. Those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in most dire circumstances than you and I could ever imagine. There has to be something different about us. Understanding that we are exiles should motivate us to a life of trusting God's protection and God's providence, or providence and his sovereignty. We are God's children and we will not be forgotten or abandoned. But remember, hold fast and stand firm in knowing this that our suffering is temporary. It is temporary. And that God, the great shepherd, watches over his flock. His promise is to feed us, to guide and protect us. Would you stand firm? And the God who loves us and gave his life for us is also sovereign, providential, and has purposes for us that we we may not know today so endure the hostility of this world the suffering of this world with the hope of the goodness and truth and love of our god would you all pray by your head for a moment take a moment to pause to consider what we shared through first peter would you pray and ask god Father, do do I trust in your sovereignty? Do Do I trust in your providence? Do I trust in your purposes? If not, if you're struggling, would you ask for him just to give you the strength to help you to understand? Maybe it's just time for you to submit. Maybe it's so tough your heart is just about yourself and you're trying to make sense of it all. Let me share with you, you'll never know until you put your trust in the one who is the sovereign, providential, purposeful God who loves his children and created us that we may be with him. Father, I pray that you'd give us the strength to understand this. Help us to stand firm. If there's any here that are wavering, Father, would you strengthen them this morning with your Holy Spirit to know these truths? And if there's here any that do not know these truths, they're not standing firm because they're, they're still trying to grasp. Will you give them understanding? Would you break their hearts? see the truth of your word and father may we glorify you more lord let us live lives that are pleasing we pray this in the name of christ amen
0: we hope you have enjoyed this week's walking in faith podcast we encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread god's message to all those in need if you have any questions or comments we would love to hear from you